Welcome to Carry the Fire, a podcast where we explore the big questions of life through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm your host, Dustin Kensrue, and my hope is that through these conversations with people of diverse and divergent backgrounds and beliefs, we can glimpse the world anew through each other's unique perspectives. Uh, fairly long ago, uh, coming out of this practice started giving myself this sort of instruction that when your heart is breaking, let it break all the way open. Mm. All the way, you know, that so there, when we really look into this pain and suffering, it's, you know, we, it's the suffering of the whole world, first of all. And that realization that, you know, hearing the cries of the whole world, then this, this becomes of a peace with compassion. We think, well, how can I bear the suffering of the whole world? Hello, everyone. Today on the pod, we are joined by Valerie Forstman. Valerie is an associate master Zen teacher in the Sanbo Kyoden tradition and also has a PhD in Hebrew biblical interpretation. In our conversation, she tells the story of her introduction to Zen practice. She talks about the way her practice has impacted her life and specifically how it is impacting the way she walks through these strange times of social distancing and canceled plans. And she shares some about the ways that Zen has given her new ways to interpret the unconditional love she found in her spiritual roots. Let's dive in. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time. My pleasure, really. Um, how have you been holding up in uh, the lockdown? Yeah, such an interesting time. Really remarkable mm-hmm. to be alive now. Um, yeah. I've, uh, of course, uh, all plans canceled, and mm-hmm. my partner and I are um, sheltering at home, both of us able to uh, reach out to others, do a little bit of work from home, which is helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. But everything is different. Um, yeah. And we're, you know, for us personally, we're, we're, our life has it such that I travel a lot, we're often apart for long stretches of time. Um, and here we are together, we're taking daily walks at a beautiful lake nearby and sitting zazen together, um, mm-hmm. enjoying meals together, just uh, a sense of solitude um, and really um, wonder. And uh, so so personally, um, you know, it's, it's rather a heightened time. Um, for uh, for practice, mm-hmm. uh, for for really being mindful, um, for doing things that uh, I I see as gifts, and at the same time, um, you know, sitting right in the midst of the suffering, and uh, we are watching the news, and uh, I feel uh, that it's important to be with people and aware of what's going on 
without being swamped by that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, extraordinary time. Yeah. Uh, well, I emailed you about it too, but basically I'm just trying to get perspectives from different people and specifically through the lens of the, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Uh, and I like to start out kind of getting at those by asking um, if you remember when you were growing up, what would give you uh, a deep sense of wonder about the world? Oh, what a lovely question. I feel very fortunate that I was born into a context where that was, there was space for wonder. Um, my mother was an educator, a piano teacher. My father was a theologian. Uh, there was, uh, from early on somehow, perhaps from that context, perhaps just that genetic makeup, um, I mean, I, I lived in the world with a sense of wonder mm -hmm. and um, with, this, with also um, being drawn to sort of the deepest questions, even as a young child. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, wondering at, uh, uh, with amazement at the beauty of the world and also quite aware of, of suffering and wondering why. Yeah. You know, why? So, uh, but perhaps because of my context, uh, nature and music and human love, uh, human relationship were all sources of, of wonder. Also, I mean, you know, growing up in that context, I remember a very young child sitting on my bed in the dark at night, you know, what is God? Mm -hmm. And I was hearing, you know, in my faith context about this person, you know, the, the Christ, Jesus Christ. And as, as a little girl, you know, just, just walk into my room and show yourself. You know, so on the one hand, there was this great wonder at mystery, uh, but you know, also like, just it seemed there was an expectation that this would be shown, uh, and you know, I remember a period, night after night, of waiting, and strangely, never. Um, I can't remember feeling dashed or disappointed mm -hmm. or angry, uh, you know, it just somehow what came out of that was a sense as I grew that uh, the, the questions themselves, the seeking itself had a, a value and a life to it that um, while, you know, it's genuine seeking, mm -hmm. it, it has that the real place of value might be in the very asking of the question, that that's where we have our life, and that it was mm -hmm. okay, that this mystery was big enough to contain all of that and uh, kind of continue to draw, draw us in. 
How old were you when you were starting to think through that stuff? I, re- I remember the evenings, you know, these nights about five, five, wow. five. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember that continuing. Uh, my father was a professor at Stanford when I was a young child, um, religion department, and then moved the family to Nashville, Tennessee, uh, which was tough, you know, for kids um, to uh, join the faculty at Vanderbilt Divinity School. So I can kind of track uh, being eight and still having that experience of waiting in the dark. Hmm. So you now have a PhD in Biblical Interpretation. You're also a Zen master in the Sanbo Kyoden tradition. Uh, You continue to work at a Christian university in Texas. Uh, (laughs) So it's a wide variety of things happening. And uh, um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your spiritual roots, uh, kind of what tradition you were raised in, and then how those roots have kind of grown out to where you are now. Yes. I'm, I want correction. I'm, an, uh, I'm part of the Sanbo Zen tradition, and in that tradition, I my title is Associate Zen Master. So okay. uh, there are, you know, in this uh, Japanese way, there is uh, a progression through the practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's not inappropriate to say Roshi, but there is a distinction there. Um, Gotcha. Yeah. So, uh, as I said, I, I grew up in a, um, really born into a, what I would call a progressive Protestant religious tradition. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Christian faith was, um, seemed very natural. Um, it was a, a faith of exploration, uh, one very much tied to social justice. Um, and, uh, church and community, and uh, and a sense that God is love. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we're we're kind of bred in the bone. Uh, never with proselytizing. I wasn't forced, uh, but I did grow up with this sense that uh, you know there was this fundamental reality that Christian faith was opening up, you know, to me uh, and in the world of you are my beloved, you know, this this sense of uh, unconditional love. At the same time, uh, it would be quite unusual, I think, to grow up no matter one's circumstances, no matter the privilege, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, having experiences that wound us and that cut us off and that uh, make us feel separated and uh, lacking, you know. Mm -hmm. That sense of lack that just goes to the heart, oh. And so, at the same time that I was, I thought this unconditional love is a beautiful idea and in some way real in this world, but not for me. You know, there's just mm. that gap, not quite. And I, I went off to uh, college. Uh, I, I was uh, in love with classical music by then and pursued that and carried with me into that 
a sense of lack. I remember my my mother had taken a um, you know a, a little card, a blank card, and written on it uh, something about unconditional love. You are loved unconditionally, you know, no matter the circumstances, no matter. And however she put that in a beautiful sentence or two, I had mm-hmm. put it up on the mirror, you know, in my dorm room. <laughs> uh, but. But somehow, you know, there was this struggle to feel completely included in that love. And so fast forward, you know, uh, a career in classical music, um, which helped me find my way. Uh, Of all places, it brought me to Dallas, Texas uh, for work. And lo and behold, uh, I found the Maria Kenan Zen Center with Ruben Habito Roshi, the guiding teacher. Uh, didn't I, I had had an experience, I think, as a teenager, actually, of the world that Zen points to. But I had no context for unpacking that, for understanding mm-hmm. that. Uh, and I had dabbled in meditation in college. I you know, went to Oberlin College where this was, you know, these kinds of practices and interreligious understandings and everything was going on there. It was all available. Um, mm-hmm. But I hadn't really found a practice. And uh, through music, I was led to this uh, amazing opportune moment of finding myself at the Zen Center, receiving an introduction and feeling really at home, knowing that this practice was something that I, you know, absolutely needed to do, Mm -hmm. (laughs) no matter how it went, you know, I kept at it. And um, as one does, some months in, I signed up for what's called a session, uh, an intensive period of practice. Actually, it was early enough on in my practice, I didn't really know, it hadn't sunk in what, what that, that session, that intensive retreat would be. Uh, yeah. So I showed up, fortunately, it was a, a far enough drive out of town that I didn't feel I could just look at the schedule and think, I can't do that, and turn around <laughs> and come home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there I was. And, and I was so, you know, it was great. I was, we were all arranged in a big zendo, just a kind of a cinder block building that was turned into a, a zendo with a little altar down at the front. And, and uh, unusually, no other emblems. Often these retreats are held in, you know, former convents or monasteries, so there mm. are uh, Christian symbols around, and in this case that wasn't so. So it was a really empty space, and uh, uh, I was seated between, I remember, two uh, happened to be tall men, long-time practitioners. Mm-hmm. So in my sort of, wow, how am I going to do this? Eight and a half hours of sitting a day, all, you know, I did, how? I was seated between, it felt like two pillars. 
(laughs) And I was working on this initial koan that is so integral to the Zen traditions, this ancient koan, and uh, and one hand clapping. The one that I was given was uh, Joshu's moo. Joshu's moo. Does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Mm. And Joshu, this great eighth-century master, says moo. So the invitation to the student is to sit with that moo. Breathe moo, walk moo, nothing but moo. Uh, that's, there's a lot that can be said about that, but in the context of that session, a, a few days in, um, you know, before there was any chance to have some expectation, um, I was sitting and uh, had the sense while sitting of, uh, uh, I, I guess you could say an apparition, a vision, some, this figure, a white sort of figure appeared before me. Mm-hmm. And uh, even in that context, and having actually been uh, away from the church, not out of rebellion, but just circumstances, for some time, um, what what came to me in that moment of this facing this figure was uh, that's Christ. Hmm. Almost immediately, I heard the words, "This is my body." Utterly transfixed, this is my body. And after I don't know a few moments, I'm not sure how long. The thought came, that's blasphemy. (laughs) (laughs) This is my body? (laughs) And so immediately it all went away, you know. Mm -hmm. And fairly soon. Did you take take that to mean this, the this of everything, or? It fell on me in the sense of this one sitting here. Sure, Mm. this everything, but really, this one, oh, okay. this is my body, you know. What's happening right now. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I wouldn't have separated, I wouldn't have said, oh, you know, until the thought that's blasphemy, when that came up, it's like, oh, this Valerie is the body of Christ, like there's some equation there, you know. Mm-hmm. But actually the experience was, nothing but this very body sitting there is Mm. the body of Christ. So the bell rang and we bowed and we stood and the clappers sounded and we slowly started this walk called Kin Hin, uh, you know, the, the ongoing silent walking meditation. And, uh, there were about 40 people, so it was a big circle in this room. And down at the end was this altar where there had been all along a, a photo, a, a, a picture in a frame of my teacher's teacher, Yamada Konroshi. Uh, and he's, uh, you know, 
someone I've had such respect for. I had read about him in The Three Pillars of Zen. Just the fact that he was my teacher's teacher, great respect. But in that face was just, had been for me an inscrutable Japanese face. Mm-hmm. And we were walking in Kinhen and in somehow walking past the altar, my eye just happened to just glance at the photo, just catch a glimpse of it mm-hmm. by chance. And suddenly, this compassion was just pouring out of his face. Hmm. And the sense was, I understood. I understood why. Not in some rational sense, but there was just this understanding. Hmm. And pretty soon, we went back and began the next sit. And before long, I happened to be tapped to go and see the teacher. And uh, fortunately, there was a, because it was a large session, there was a row of like five mats in line to see the teacher. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sitting there without, really with this moo, what is moo, what is moo? But all the while, these tears are just kind of coming, running down my cheeks, uh, quiet. And uh, by the time I got to the, Matt, right outside the door, you know, my lap was wet. But the last thought I had was, I'll never get this. Get what? What is Moo? Mm. You know, this question, this deepest question, this sort of opening question, you know, the fundamental matter. I mean, you know, it's just, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Now, as a teacher, it's so common. I hear it over and over. I'll never get this. And there's something about that uh, surrender that is part of the path. I went in and I sat down in front of my teacher, in front of Ruben, and he said, what's happening? And I said, nothing. And then I suddenly recalled and said, well, I was sitting and this figure appeared and I heard these words. And, you know, then I had this thought, it all went away. I walked by the, you know, I just recounted. Mm-hmm. And as I did that, it, it opened up uh, this space that had just this vast space it opened up in a very intimate way and he asked me at that moment what is Mu and it just came it came without not from a discursive place it was just in the most natural way and then it comes with a lot of checking questions and we were suddenly just with his guidance plunged freely into this world where there just is no separation Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I could now, stepping back from that, uh, you know, one way I might describe what happened was this shift from unconditional love as something that you have. Mm-hmm. It's not something we have. It's what we are. Mm. And And that came home in a way that 
has it just it just doesn't leave it's not to say you know practice is forever <laughs> lifetime uh forever and ever and always opening new horizons but that shift that you know we cannot fall out of this that in a sense it's our birthright you know it's simply what we are that came home in a way that uh, I would call the great relief Hmm. so uh, without any you know beyond anything I could possibly concoct, this merging, in a sense, of, of Christian faith and Zen uh, awakening just unfolded hmm. in that particularity. Yeah. And at that point, you had not started your studies in biblical interpretation? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So I... Uh, continued, of course, this this launched me into practice. I mean, now my practice can begin. One feels that over and over in this practice. And so uh, uh, that retreat was in the fall, and about, I don't know, four months later, I basically got up off my cushion one day and heard myself say out loud, I think I'll go back to school. I was like, hmm. oh, really? <laughs> and what had come up was this sense of wanting to find Christian language to interpret what had happened mm. and then to be able to share with uh, Christians this practice because it had been so liberating and, and really, in a sense, opened the gate for me to finally embrace my own Christian in a sense, you know, background, inheritance. Um, so I thought, well, I'll just go to school and get a master's of theological studies. Uh, there's a, a place um, about 50 minutes from my house in, in a divinity school that happened to have its own heritage in the tradition I grew up in, which is the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And I knew some of the faculty there uh, who had actually been students either of my father or at uh, the school where he taught. You know, I'd even, mm. uh, when I, I mean, I Googled that place and it just felt like the commitments of the institution to social justice and this sort of progressive theological study uh, that included my own concerns for uh, you know, feminist interpretation, uh, for concern, for reading on the margins, um, for uh, persons of color, for uh, for persons of LGBTQ mm. identity. I, I needed a place, I needed to study these texts and these uh, theological sort of rubrics for this framework in a context that was clearly supportive of uh, all of humanity. Mm -hmm. And the school seemed that to me. So I applied and I started. And at the time, I was continuing to play as a professional musician, uh, continued that. Um, one thing led to another. I, I much to my surprise, um, kind of fell in love with... Uh, 
with the Hebrew language, mm -hmm. which I had never studied before, uh, with what's called uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, and with questions about uh, you know literary theory, which all resonated so deeply for me with this Zen <laughs> practice. Um, you know the the linguistic construction of meaning, for one thing. That just that just you know, it was so exciting to, you know, that we are the stories that we tell and how are we creating this world through language. Uh, and, and then theologically, you know, what, what does it mean to say it is no longer I who live, but Christ who live in me? And, mm. and this sense from Zen practice that is so clear, that, you know, there is this death and life, and that's the heart of it. You know what? What this great 13th century Zen master Dogen called life death. You know, one he put a hyphen there, life death. Hmm. Uh, so that that fundamental question belongs to both of these traditions, and to be able to wrestle with that, and 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 then begin to unpack it through the reading of texts, and. Uh, and actually looking at language and the way it requires the gap to make meaning. <laughs> you know? uh, it was so fascinating to look at that, what it is to be human, to be linguistic creatures, at the same time that I'm doing this practice where you can absolutely see through the gap. You know, Zen, this is beyond words and letters. <laughs> I mean, and yet when you see that, words are also it, you know. Uh, so it's it was mm. just this uh, path that naturally uh, one thing led to another. Uh, talk about wandering into the center of the circle of wonder. That's Master Wanshi put it that way. Uh, this wonder uh, that I could explore in these ways. And so the, the door opened to enter the PhD program there. Um, in Hebrew Bible, which by then was my area of interest, mm -hmm. and it, uh, you know, strangely seemed uh, just opportune. Why not? I mean, mo that's, I don't recommend that. Actually, I don't. I, I don't think uh, that that's the normal reason to do a PhD. It's <laughs> <So> why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I, I had a, the privilege of having this other career of other means of support I so mm -hmm. it was possible to do this out of sheer interest yeah you know just uh, a love of language uh, a pursuit of the intersection of all of these interests of what it is to be human um, and and a, a way to kind of cultivate, uh, as it turns out, uh, Zen practice and, and Zen teaching, I feel it's, it's really fueled that. And along the way, it gave me a second career, which happened to be very convenient in the timing. And just, you know, how, how interesting is that to have the chance in our lives to, uh, I mean, you know about that to do one thing thoroughly as a career and then to shift mm. and have this whole other arena of of your work life that is uh, not unrelated but really fresh and different. I mean, 
You know, I was uh, an administrator in a theologi- graduate theological school for 11 years. I've just mm-hmm. retired in January, rather ironically, uh, from that work uh, to devote myself full-time to Zen training and Zen teaching. Okay, so you just stopped working at the college? I did, yes, yes. Just, so I had, I had all of this travel scheduled uh Mm -hmm. the opportunities were were just sort of coming in and it was it felt like uh i was holding back the floodgates for a while i mean the the grad school where i worked was incredibly flexible about allowing me to travel um Mm -hmm. for teaching and you know to work around the edges of what was a very demanding job but finally it just felt like it's time now like i can now do this and so I retired into um, months of a schedule of traveling for to lead this session or co-lead this session and work at this place or just practice in this place. I mean, I've, I've I went to New Mexico. I went to Germany for three weeks. I went back to New Mexico. I was headed to Florida, a group I lead there. I was scheduled for a month in Germany in May, and you know about. A month ago, everything ceased. Yeah. It just stopped. And so then I had the opportunity, like so many of us, to uh, sit with disappointment hmm. and find new ways. You know, well, now what do we do? How do we reach out? How do we connect? Uh, What's what is the wonder of this? You know, really, exactly this where we are. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, it took a little bit. I was quite disappointed um, because I had waited so long for the mm-hmm. opportunity. I think, and when it took off, it was. It was really an incomparable joy to do this thing and to begin to grow more in it, uh, to offer what's what's mine to do in these various contexts. Um, and then, you know, just, just all canceled. Uh, I found it a really, really capacious teacher that disappointment and maybe that's again coming from a place of privilege uh, because I have a house where I can take shelter and mm-hmm. enough resources right now you know I could see that disappointment has an agenda right it thinks there's a plan that ought to happen that's been cut off mm-hmm. and that's a construct. When I really sat with it, you know, what what could be more alive, more dynamic, uh, more complete, more calling to us than this place where we stand? You know, hmm. it led me to reflect on again, perhaps. A kind of privilege, but I think a real pointer from this practice, the uh, 
contrast between loneliness, which uh, I know so many people are suffering, but from a practice perspective, you know, that's a little, that's like disappointment. You know, that has an agenda. That thinks it knows what would be better than this. Mm-hmm. Whereas solitude includes everything. Hmm. But externally, they look very similar at times. Yes. Yeah. Would you connect that to kind of the bigger issue that the Buddha was getting at w- in looking at suffering, where the the main, like the pain will come, but then you extend this pain by by not wanting it in some sense, by not just accepting what it is, by wanting something other than yeah. what that pain is? Yeah, I, I do connect it very much to that suffering compassion. Uh, fairly long ago, I, coming out of this practice, started giving myself this sort of instruction that when your heart is breaking, let it break all the way open. Mm. All the way, you know. that there, So there, when we really look into this pain and suffering, it's, you know, we, it's the suffering of the whole world, first of all. And that realization that, you know, hearing the cries of the whole world, then this, this becomes of a piece with compassion. Hmm. And, and, you know, then, I mean, we think, well, how can I bear the suffering of the whole world? You can't. You can't. But this wide open heart that is limitless. Uh, there's just no boundary. There's no container. So it, it allows this suffering to be of a piece with the boundless compassion that is at the heart of this practice. Uh, I, I really like and have been sort of reminded of a title of a book by James Ford, a, a Zen master in a very close tradition to Sambo Zen. Uh, some time ago, he wrote a book entitled "If You're Lucky, Your Heart Will Break," mm-hmm. and it's his Zen story, really, at that point, early on, and and he tells an experience of his own awakening with just <laughs> with the most simple circumstances, uh, and it, it's in a way of you know having this sense of being kind of closed down of things aren't right, they're not as they should be, and then suddenly being met, I I suppose you could say, by the extraordinary beauty. He's stirring this thin soup, 
you know, for the meal, which he's also very unhappy about, right? <laughs> and, and up comes just a little wilted leaf of cabbage. Mm. And suddenly, it's just the, you know, extraordinary beauty of that one wilted leaf of cabbage. I have a, a good friend, another uh, associate Zen master in this tradition, who uh, a few years ago we were enjoying a meal together, and just in the conversation, in the course of the conversation, he said, people cannot tolerate the beauty of things. Hmm. And you know, that, the conversation went on, I, I had I left with that, just carrying it. And sort of sitting with it, well, why is that? What is that? And to really see beauty, oneself has to recede. You know, in a sense, you disappear. The beauty disappears you. It's just that. That happened to... John Ishmael Ford, when he saw that cabbage leaf. Uh, so this, for, uh, this may be a roundabout way of talking about this suffering that is so at hand now. I feel it is one and the same with compassion. And out of that, then we find what is ours to do. Hmm. This is not awakening into some Shangri-La that takes you out of the world. It's mm. this world. It's exactly this world. This yeah. broken world that for myself needs to break all the way open. Yeah, it seems that this time is kind of primed for those kinds of openings, maybe. Um, that you are stuck you can't be thrown into, for a lot of us, you can't be thrown into all of the things that are normally distracting you from the beauty of everything, I think. Yeah. And it, it starts encroaching and you can <laughs> kind of fight it off or finally, finally see it or have it break through in these, these moments. Um, That's beautifully yeah. put, yeah. It starts encroaching. I mean, I, uh, there is no way to uh, make something grandiose of this global pandemic. And yet, the global, you know, for, for many of us, what's a global pause? And this great uncertainty, this great not knowing is a, is a chance certainly plunges us into practice, I would think, in whatever tradition one can find that is fitting. It uh, opens up the possibility of making a different kind of world. Speaking of practice, are, could you maybe just tell a bit about what the Zen practice looks like uh, for you and your tradition? Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, the fundamental 
the core, the heart, <laughs> the ground of Zen is zazen, is sitting meditation practice, which is practice, which is, excuse me, posture, breathing, and stilling the mind. These three basic elements. Uh, you know, one finds a posture conducive to balance, to stillness, kind of alignment to really being in the body, being grounded. Normally, a posture. Normally, normally kneeling? It can be kneeling on a mat and a cushion. It can be, uh, if someone is flexible, uh, you know, the, the, the oldest tradition was sort of uh, full lotus, you know, mm, or half yeah. lotus. That's what Dogen uh, teaches his monks, or you, there's a, you know, some people can sit cross-legged, but um, with both legs sort of on the mat. Kneeling is helpful position. Some people use a bench, which is fine, like a, a small mm -hmm. prayer bench to kneel on. A chair is also fine. It's, uh, it's not about enduring pain. Yeah. Uh, in fact. Finding a posture that's conducive uh, with as little pain as possible, uh, you know, conducive to this uh, awareness, concentration practice, really being present, following the breath, that's what I would go for. So I once heard um, the <clears throat> abbot of Sambo Zen teaching an introduction to Zen to some college students out in California, and he mm. taught posture, breathing, stilling the mind. And at the end, the, one of the young students said, well, which is most important? <laughs> and, you know, I'm sitting there and I think he's going to say stilling the mind because that's so challenging. And he said posture. So it, hmm. that first element of finding this posture where somehow your knees, if you're on a mat, are, are on the mat. Uh, so there's, it's like a tripod between your, you know, your butt, your sits bones, and your knees. And, and then you can find this um, balance with the mm -hmm. upper body that allows the chest to open, the head to gradually rise up. You know, um, there, there are a number of very helpful introductory, you know, you can Google it online and get lots mm -hmm. of instructions about that various postures. Uh, if you're in a chair, feet flat on the floor, back a little away from the chair. Um, there's a, a hand position, a mudra that uh, we use in Sambo Zen that's very common. Um, that is uh, right hand in the lap, lap, just resting in the lap, left hand on top, and the thumb slightly touching. So it almost forms a kind of a heart. The thumbs are very near the, the navel or the hara. Uh, hmm. And I, I've come to very much appreciate that hand position, though I know there are others, and um, this is simply ours. Uh, uh, for someone who feels, uh, you know, is having struggling with the shoulders, sometimes we'll suggest just laying your hands in your lap. I mean, it's, it, it's not, uh, you know, it's a very helpful form but not at all a straitjacket. Mm. Uh, so then breathing, you know, is just following the breath. When I sit, I take a few, I, I've 
I, I sit down, I, I rock a little bit, I find my posture, rock a little left, right, back and forth, front and back, so I really find that fulcrum, that sense of centering. And then I take a few deep breaths to begin. And then I just settle into natural breathing. Uh, breathing in, I, if unless I'm terribly congested, breathing through the nose. Uh, with the mouth gently closed. So it's very helpful to notice the if there's any tension in the jaw or the throat to let that open. It's very helpful to kind of do a scan where you're just balanced. I remember so many times my own teacher saying fully relaxed, fully alert. Hmm. Uh, over time, the breath naturally seems to slow down. It naturally seems to deepen. But I'm not um, necessarily making that happen. Mm. I'm just breathing. And then stilling the mind, uh, thoughts arise. Uh, sometimes this is likened to sitting like a mountain and the thoughts pass by like clouds. Mm. So the invitation is as soon as you notice a thought, rather than trailing after it or sticking to it or adding to it like, you know, beads, <laughs> putting beads together on a, on a piece of string or pearls on a, you know, you, you just, as soon as the thought, you notice thinking, just return to the breath. So you could just release it uh, like a cloud passing by. Um, in this time, especially, but it's not unique to this time. Sometimes people get very quiet and things come up. Uh, if it's if it's a really important matter. Um, you know, I, one way to deal with that is to maybe have a pad of paper next to you and actually jot it down so that you won't spend the rest of the period of sitting ruminating on that. But you mm. acknowledge this is something to tend to. In fact, some people get great ideas while they're sitting. And so rather than having to sit there remembering the idea or developing the idea, you, you just write it down. Um, return to the breath if sometimes anxiety <laughs> comes up and it usually comes in the form of constriction somewhere in the body just to notice that and breathe into it again I wouldn't discursively analyze it that's not the practice but just allow some space around it and uh, again it 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 can be thought after sitting. <laughs> you know, it can, yeah. there are other, there are very helpful ways to help to explore and help us address our anxiety and what it might be pointing to. But on the cushion, just to notice the constriction and return to the breath, allow some space, breathe into it. I, you know, some teachers, and I, I, I really appreciate that, so just flood it with loving kindness. Dogen, in his universal instructions, said, 
take the backward step and shine the light inward. Some translations say, learn the backward step and shine the light inward. And that light itself, it's shining through that constriction and it will just, my experience is it will dissolve. Hmm. I, I like this phrase, Zen is a solvent. Uh, first, hmm. think, I think I first heard Father Kennedy years ago, another Zen teacher in Sambo Zen tradition say that, but Zen is a solvent. <laughs> Dogen actually, speaking of the koan, Mu, this is a more powerful way of putting it, he said, Mu is a sun with stone-melting power. Hey everyone, if you're already supporting the show through Patreon, thank you so very much. If you aren't yet, I wanted to let you know that you can now become a patron and support the show for as little as $5 a month. Becoming a patron can provide you with a variety of perks, including access to additional content like song lyric breakdown episodes, Q&A episodes where you can submit questions for me to answer, additional conversation episodes that won't show up in the public feed, and access to our Discord board where we're building community and engaging in deeper conversations around the show. Here's a sneak peek at some additional patron-only content. Yeah, I feel like half my songs are probably about light and dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, and then we come to a part where it says, uh, and on that day, as we look backwards, we will see that everything has changed and all of our trials will be as milestones on the way. Uh, and that's me kind of riffing on this idea um, that C.S. Lewis talks about in... Uh, a book called The Great Divorce, mm -hmm. uh, which is an interesting book. It's kind of a allegorical. I don't know if it's really an allegory, but it's, it basically he's he's imagining what it would be like um, to go into hell and into heaven. But there are these very interesting ways of thinking about it. Like hell is this vast gray city where everyone just keeps moving away from each other, just endlessly to the horizon, and is they're uh, which is this a very fascinating way. It basically, it's like everyone who's there is choosing to be away from everyone else, mm. and that's like their, their own You're making me want to read it. I need to read it. It's, it's a fascinating book. It's short, too. If you're digging this podcast and want to join me and others like you in our pursuit of the good, the true, and the beautiful, then joining us on Patreon is the best way to do it. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash carry the fire pod. All right, let's get back to the show. Maybe explain Moo a little bit for for people who yeah. might not be familiar yeah, with that Yeah, thanks. So this is another, so the, the posture breathing stilling the mind is you know, the basics of sitting. Um, in Sambo Zen tradition, um, we are a combination of the Soto and the Rinzai schools. So the Soto school is just sitting. That's something to be explored. and and many people are drawn to that. The Rinzai school has this long tradition of koan study, and uh, that was very compelling for me. When mm. I was given that first koan mu, it felt as though I'd been given this gem. It's sometimes described as the sword, 
this great sword of Mu that can cut through in the entangling vines, cut through our delusions, you know. That koan, a monk comes in all earnestness to Joshu and asks, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? This monk would have come unquestionably from a tradition, Buddhism, where you know, it's absolutely fundamental to that, that every, everything, every sentient being, certainly, I would say everything, has Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. So he would have, in some sense, he would have carried that with him. You know, that tenant, maybe like I carried unconditional love as a tenant, you know. Mm-hmm. But he's, you know, does a dog. Maybe you could say he's asking about this lowly creature in China. They, they were really, dogs were not well regarded that day. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's asking about himself. Do I have this awakening nature? That's mm-hmm. all that Buddha nature means, awakened, awakening nature. Do I? And Joshu says, M, U. And Chinese, it would have been Wu, W, U. Uh, transliterated, which means literally no, nothing, not having. You know, one can look into that in myriad ways. The first week that I sat with this co-op, I mean, I was driven. I was hair on fire. <clears throat> you know, <laughs> and. Uh, I remember uh, just day and night, what is Moo? What is Moo? That's the question. What is Moo? You know. What is what is what that is Moo? Negative. What is mm-hmm. that M U? What is Moo? And I, I about seven days in, I was driving home one day from this graduate school, get to a stoplight and realize, you know, I'm sitting there, what is Moo? What is Moo? And I realized I was giving myself a terrible headache, <laughs> you know. So it's, it was it was a wonderful moment of just kind of almost slamming into the wall of our discursive mind that limitation. You know, that is just not what this is about, and it's so helpful to have that exhausted, uh, you know, to uh, to run into that limitation. So I think you said you know like like this like this pandemic has sort of put us in this place where we're mm. facing this. You know, you're, you run into that limitation and then you begin to just breathe, move. Some people, it's just every exhalation and sitting and, and let Moo walk, let Moo talk, let Moo drive. Some teachers say live the life of Moo. You know, you could say, well, it's sort of like a mantra, but it, it, if you practice with it, it uh, that, that's just scratching the surface. It's a solvent. It's a penetrating it, sun. Kind of a way to get at seeing or experiencing a non-duality in everything? Yes. Yeah. When I say solvent... I mean our concepts, our assumptions, of course our, our constrictions, but what is all that? You know, it's like the scaffolding of I, me, mine that is 
fundamentally based on a sense of separation. I'm here mm. and you are there. And out of that, I concoct this identity that I then feel compelled to defend. I'm insecure, you know, that I'm separate. And so there's this thing I have to, you know, sort of hold up in the world and mm. that's threatened all the time in some way. You know, it's, it's like a, a, a scaffolding and also this wall. Uh, and we could say our, our identity, our, sep- our sense of separation, fundamentally. And, and so students who work with Mu or maybe <clears throat> another, there are other koans that are sometimes given initially, will come up against this, uh, you know, they'll encounter a fear of letting go. You know, well, if I, if I let this all fall, if I, if I let go of that separate self, then what? Yeah. You know, and that is really uh, fertile ground to encounter that fear and let yourself sit with it and really you might come to see that from the beginning our hands are empty that there really is nothing to defend Uh, it might come through just as you said a a glimpse of this non-dual world this one world Uh, Yamada Konroshi who I mentioned before um, likened our our experience to living as though in a in a glass room, a darkened room, darkened glass. And with this practice with sitting, maybe with Mu, um, maybe with who hears, there are other ways. Uh, gradually, the glass gets lighter. And then maybe in some sudden moment, there'll be um, like a pinprick through the glass. And you see this whole world out there. You know, you you get a glimpse of this world. And actually there is then maybe not even an in here and out there, you know. And mm-hmm. and then over time with practice, some for some people it's as though that little opening, just like a lens that just widens and widens and widens until finally it falls away completely. Mm-hmm. For some, the house just collapses. And then everything comes rushing in. Mm-hmm. I like that image. So when you're sitting, you are you clear your mind, and then are you always, do you proceed to a koan, or do you, like when, how do you decide, like what, you said you're kind of a mix of these two schools. Yeah, um, there's a, a so to speak curriculum, uh, that's one way of calling it, a, a, a series of koans these different volumes we start after an initial you know 
awakening experience, that, that collapsing, that non-dual world, this, this oneness, empty, infinite oneness, you know, timeless, boundless world of equality and equanimity and dynamism. A taste of that launches a student. Uh, it can, if they're drawn to it, into uh, this whole process of koan study. And we mm -hmm. start with what's called the miscellaneous koans, and then there's the uh, book called The Gateless Gate, or Mumon Khan, you know, about 48 koans, and then there's the Blue Clip Record, or Hekigan Roku, and then there's the Book of Equanimity, or the Book of Serenity, the Shoyu Roku, and then the Denkaroku, finally, the Transmission of Light, which are these beautiful exchanges between master and disciple, at the moment of awakening, this so to speak hmm. transmission. Uh, so, myself, because I was quite taken with koans, I found them very, very helpful. I mean, uh, I flew to them. You know, though they can be confounding, and and uh, it's so helpful when you come to one that you get stuck. You know, those are the really good ones, actually. It's, it, there's a certain kind of agony because one so wants to see this world and the world that is really opened up in these koans. You know, if, if, you, if you look at them from outside, they, they look like um, often just nonsense, really. Uh, yeah. You know, and from the world of, that I've been describing here, they're they're so natural, you know. They they really it's like getting to see this. Oh, and this and this. Each one just clarifies it, and and the masters are all here, sort of keeping company. It's like this great, you know, crowd of witnesses in a sense, right here with us. And so, so through that practice, I've, uh, you know, I've done that curriculum. Uh, twice with my own teacher and another time with another teacher and um, and my experience of it was I, I would you know do my daily sitting and have have read the koan and be kind of holding the koan in my heart mind but not necessarily sitting uh, you know only focused on that mm -hmm. it I heard one teacher liken it to hanging it on a hook in the back of the room of your practice, you know, and, and and then sometimes it just imposes itself. It'll just, you know, come right there. And in time, it's it, you don't figure it out. That doesn't work. It's just even if you can figure it out, it's it's like dry gruel in a bowl, you know, and a, and the teacher can see that and will mm. help you. You know, will ask a question that that throws you off that perch. <laughs> uh, you know, makes it fresh. Um, I now am continuing. I I have a koan now and then that comes up, but I often now in my practice am just sitting, hmm. just sitting, or really just sitting with the living koan of pandemic, global pandemic, whatever's at hand. Uh, when I guide students, some are in this really thriving by 
you know, taking up the koans one by one in this particular order. And, and some find that, that they don't resonate particularly. You know, it, mm. it throws them into a place of anxiety or, or into discursive mind in a way that is just not helpful to their practice. So mm. they, are, they find home in just sitting. And they still come to, uh, you know, what we call doksan, this face-to-face. They can still find uh, just a, a face-to-face encounter around practice can be very helpful. But we're not res- raising the question of a koan. We're just, it's about mm-hmm. practice. Yeah, the, um, the just sitting sounds pretty similar to, I've been practicing centering prayer recently. Um, the only difference, I think, would be that centering prayer doesn't even focus on breath, but it's that seems like a, a small issue because in the end, the breath is uh, when I've sat focusing on breath, that becomes background too. So, or um, or for for me, I mean, I've, uh, yeah, I'm, centering prayer is so close to this, and uh, I I had a chance at my school when I was teaching to. Uh, the grad school to teach a, a course in prayer across traditions, and we looked at, mm-hmm. you know, Christian contemplative practices and Zen practice, and uh, students got to taste these and look at the similarities and differences. But what you just described about the breath, I mean, that's your experience. Uh, uh, another way I might put that is it, the breath can open up in a way where there's nothing that's not the breath mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out like the contrast because it, it, on a surface level it sounds similar and I'm curious I'm sure you have a better insight into it but the the way I've heard it described is centering prayer is uh, intention based like the only thing you're doing is intending to not hold on to any thought yeah and it, then yeah. breath focus is attention you are giving attention yeah positively to the breath, um, which seems to lead to similar places, but um, I don't know. I'm curious yeah. what other differences you'd see between those Me. practices and why you yeah. prefer the Zen practice, I guess. Yeah. The word that comes to mind for me in centering prayer is emptying. Emptying. Mm. And that is resonates so deeply with what what we're doing in this Zen practice. Um, what are the differences? I mean, the forms. Um, I've been um, quite taken, especially during this time, with how often I've heard Zen teachers in the West, where where it's now so, you know, fertile, use the word love. Hmm. Perhaps in Zen, I this is just my, for myself. I might say, uh, love without substance. Love without, you could say, subject object. Just mm-hmm. this this love beyond knowing and not knowing. You know, it, it's and yet love is. 
is the word that comes up, you know, seeking for words. Okay, it's beyond words, but somehow we keep returning to this word love. In centering prayer, it may be, and you could answer this, uh, that that love and that emptying is more, uh, understands itself more as emptying into. Uh, I mean, how would you describe that love? Are you soaking in it? Is it boundless, timeless? Um, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's, I, it seems like to me the big thing that a lot of meditative practices are getting at is, I guess like you're saying, that the solvent, like the disillusion of how strongly the ego is holding on to its separateness. Yeah. And so I think from my minimal experience in different practices, it, it, that a lot of them are getting there kind of through different means. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, can't, you know, that, sorry to interrupt you, that just, no, you can. that cannot survive love. Hmm. It can't, yeah. you know, when the love fills up, there's, there's nothing outside it. You know, it is this whole one existence, what you called ego, you know, or that, that sense of separateness that we hold on to just can't really can't survive that love at the same time when you see that even it is love i mean that that compassion you know uh that once we fall into this even our anxieties our sense of separation our sense of inadequacy that's nothing but love. I mean, that line, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. For me, that is so big that I couldn't imagine saying, well, unless you sign on the dotted line of Christian faith, you're not included in that. It's interesting seeing, because I was raised in a pretty conservative Christian setting um, and having kind of deconstructed and reconstructed a lot of uh, ways that I look at the world and the divine and certain things like uh, what you just said, nothing can separate you, or I hadn't thought about the... um, I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Um, those kind of things take on a new beauty, seeing them from a different uh, angle. Um, whereas, at least for me, like the understanding that I had been kind of given for those things always felt very small um, and it and limiting, limited. Mm-hmm. And seeing it from, I guess, this bigger picture, nothing could be less limited than seeing it from from that perspective where uh, that understanding of Christ in all things um, that you it's not you no longer being but it's uh, you opening up to the way that you are connected to everything yeah I I'm I'm curious uh, oh sorry I I just wanted to say um, one of the most meaningful aspects of my work at this uh, 
graduate theological school, I interviewed every student who applied to be admitted, usually face-to-face or on an online platform, mm-hmm. most often face-to-face with a campus visit. And I was also the um, kind of open door for students there who were struggling. And I saw so many people go through of their own unique and unrepeatable version of coming up in a very limiting, very judgmental uh, Christian context, sometimes so um, violently rejected by mm. that very context, you know, that, that, that home. So they, ha- they were forced to leave. And then, you know, the bravery and creativity of going through that deconstruction and finding one's way to a faith that is uh, freeing, liberative, that cannot exclude anyone mm-hmm. uh, by its very definition, by the fact of what it is, you know, this love. Uh, I, I really appreciate the work you're doing and the process you've gone through. It, uh, it, it just reminds, it just tugs at me because I've, I've seen uh, a number of stories of people who, you know, even left that and came back and, and are in training or are now out in the world being pastors or chaplains, or counselors. And you're doing that in a, in a, a very creative way. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think a big part of why I'm doing this, well, one reason is I get to talk to interesting people, which is fun, but uh, is that it, I, one, I, I, like the little spaces that I found someone had gone a little bit before in a certain direction was so life-giving to be like, oh, there, there are options of ways of thinking, because I think that's what had stopped me so many times before when I'd come to a wall was I only saw two options and both were problematic but I wanted to hold on to goodness truth and beauty and I thought the only way I could do it was holding on to this whole chunk of other things and so I kept doing that yeah uh, but not realizing there was so much so many nuanced paths of seeing everything so I think just hearing people's stories and I mean, even for me, I didn't know, uh, like, it, growing up there was, like, the Christians in our camp, and then you would hear about, like, the liberal Christians or something, but, like, they basically might as well have not yeah. even believed in the same God. Like, it's it was like, th- that's real bad over there. Yeah. And so I, d- I didn't understand this broad uh, breadth of, <laughs> of uh, even what the Christian faith yeah. could hold, let alone, like... Yeah. Um, that's the ways that you can see the interactions between, uh, I don't know, when I listen to anyone of any faith talking now, like I, there's so much that I can see, even if I don't, I don't know, share all of the backgrounds or even some of the more literal beliefs they have, there's, there's so much beauty and so much resonance in all of the ways that these things have been formed over time. Yeah, I would agree. And what a world if we could uh, open our eyes to that more and more so that we see so we can begin to hear these resonances uh, and appreciate them, even in the midst of our differences. 
But uh, I, I think that would go a long way uh, to helping us not, uh, you know, there's sort of this reactive, as you, as you said, there's an edifice that's constructed and you feel like if any part of that gets pulled out like a house of cards or, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. all going to fall. And yet, so we relate to one another so, through fear and through judgment. And if, if we could just pause that and allow ourselves to acknowledge and, uh, you know, listen to the ways that the resonances, uh, I, I think this could be transforming. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful because I know that's happening in some, in many ways around the world. Um, you know, you asked about centering prayer and sin, and I responded in a way to the, you know, this emptying. Um, I would at the same time not want to take from centering prayer its beauty in a un- as a unique practice. You know, it's I I'm not I wouldn't say oh these are the same. You know, mm-hmm. I I, th- I think this process of emptying, there's only we're emptying into what from what. I mean, there's just one. Yeah. But the paths, you know, they have their distinct characteristics, mm-hmm. and um, I I obviously have. I mean, I I just have these roots in Christian faith that that show themselves in various ways, but Zen has called my name. Mm-hmm. And so you ask, you know, why that? I mean, uh, I can do no other. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just the great, a great gift and perhaps something of a mystery. How, how, I mean, you might ask yourself, how could we be so, so lucky? to find this path. Uh, there are times where I actually feel, you know, for this I was born. And I don't, there's nothing grandiose about that. My goodness, you know, we're always beginning. A beginner's mind is, is just the fact. And it's shown moment to moment. But at the same time, it's like, I. I could never have imagined a life of such meaning and um, opportunity and it's sort of infinite possibility. And in that sense, you're saying tied to your practice? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. This particular path yeah. that I happened, you could say, perhaps, <laughs> you know that was there at just the right time in the right place. I don't, I don't know why, but I'm just, I mean, there's this uh, Japanese poem my teacher would quote often early on in my practice in translation, anonymous, I don't know the reason why, but tears of gratitude fall from my eyes. I feel like that's uh, that's a good place to wrap it up. Okay. 
I appreciate so much you taking the time. You're the first uh, person in a Zen or even broader Buddhist tradition that uh, I've been able to have on. So I uh, value having your perspective on that. And yeah. Yeah, thank you, Dustin. And somehow, uh, you know, when you contacted me some months ago, I was traveling, right? I was launched into that. <laughs> and, and this seemed so far away. And we had, at the time, I had no clue when this conversation would fall, that it would be in the midst of social isolation. Yeah. So it's really, uh, honestly, a, a special joy to talk to you today. Well, thank you very much. If you have a moment today, it would help a ton if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Uh, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at CarryTheFirePod. I want to thank my producer, Andy Lara, and all of our executive producers, Adam Collins, Amy Armstrong, Andrew Diaz, Brianna Webb, Brian Weisbecker, Cameron Lane, Colin Hawthorne, Denise Sugita, David Cobb, Drew Para, Eric Gonzalez, Gabe Muniz, Gary Jilke, Hamsa Babahani, Jeremy Robinson. Jess Card, John Buchan, John Diego, John Engel, Jonathan Clark, Jordan Goodman, Jordan Everly, Joshua Malara, Kyle Starr, Luca Leva, Luis Rivera, Luis Enriquez, Marco Padilla, Mark Francis, Mark Weiss, Matt Fuchs, Matthew Alcon, Michael Maitland, Miguel Pinabroa, Nathaniel Bailey, Ron Alberca, Ryan Cornelius, Samantha Simmons, Sean Weidmeyer, Stephen Saucier, Susanna Coleman, Ted Reiser, Tiffany Payne, Timothy Dewine, and William Galdemez. Thank you all so much for carrying the fire with me, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>